I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Adam Hunt. Adam is the CTO and Chief Data Scientist at RiskIQ. As Chief Data Scientist, Adam leads the data science, data engineering, and research teams at RiskIQ. Adam pioneers research automating the detection and adversarial attacks across disparate digital channels, including email, web, mobile, and social media. Adam also has relevant patents for identifying new external threats using machine learning. Adam received his PhD in experimental particle physics from Princeton University. As an award-winning member of the CMS collaboration at the Large Hadron Collider, he was an integral part of developing the online and offline analysis systems that led to the discovery of the Higgs boson. In this episode, we discuss starting in particle physics, data science, communication skills, process automation, managing attack surface areas, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right. Adam, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. And uh, you know, we were just kind of talking before we hit record that you actually kind of came into cybersecurity in kind of a different a different angle. Um, and I was saying kind of jokingly that I haven't had that many uh, PhDs from physics, much less PhDs from physics in Princeton uh, on the podcast. So everybody kind of has a different background, but why, why don't you kind of let the listeners know how you kind of came up and what some of the things you worked on even prior to getting into what we have as cybersecurity now? All right. Sounds great. So yeah, my PhD is in, in particle physics um, from Princeton. I worked in, uh, at the LHC during the, uh, the Higgs boson, discovered the early days of the LHC. Um, the, uh, the thing that got me into, into this was, uh, into physics was just the curiosity for learning, a curiosity for like understanding, like what's, uh, like looking for um, the elusive. Uh, and so that's really how how I transitioned into security. But the the skills I learned at the LHC were were really uh, really key. So I learned a lot about analysis. I learned a lot about um, uh, hardware. A lot about networking. Um, I because I was part of the early days where we were still racking servers and we were still setting up the experiment, still performing um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, analysis and investigations on the on the actual detectors. I was able to spend a lot of time learning about how all of these systems work together. So you can think of it as more of, as a hybrid of, a, of an operations role um, and a development role and, an, and, an, and a data scientist role. So that, that's, where I, that's where I came up. Um, so as you can imagine, all those skills together really lend itself well to, to data science, but in, in, in particular, it lends itself well to operating huge um, uh, huge warehouses of data, and that's where RiskIQ really comes on, uh, comes in, and shines. Is our is our plethora of data. So in security, why is that interesting to me? It's like it's a problem that is that'll never be solved. It's something that we we're constantly um, fighting against, constantly like uh, looking for the next elusive threat, and that's where that's the parallel I see in in particle physics. So it's it's uh, you're always looking for 
the needle in the haystack. In, in security, the same way you're looking for it in, in particle physics, you use the same tools. Um, the only difference is in particle physics, you have a theory that you, that'll help guide you. In, um, in security, you don't. So that's that's the only difference that I see. And so, and, and as my, uh, on my, I think it was my third day, uh, the CD, CEO um, of RiskIQ came over. He said, just remember, Adam, that this is not a problem to be solved, but a game to be played. And I continue to play that game every day, and I love it. Uh, that's a, that's such a great quote. <laughs> and I guess yeah. you know that's funny because you know we we definitely talk a lot about security. You know, there's there's just so much data now, and it's not slowing down. It seems to be growing exponentially. Um, and try to do data correlation across disparate data sets to kind of find those threat patterns and, and identify risk becomes a, a harder and harder job every day. So I guess yes. you know, I guess what you know we we talk about the term data scientist, but I guess how, how would you define it in in your world and how you kind of apply it? Because I think People might not really fully understand how it is a science. It yeah, it absolutely is a science, and so you have uh, you have hypothesis. Uh, so, I'll, let me describe the team, and then we can go into the uh, into what we have as uh, what I describe as a as a data scientist, because it's a little bit of a, a hybrid role mm -hmm. in the way I look at it. So the team, the research team at RiskIQ is made up of of threat researchers, uh, data engineers, data scientists, uh, and a lot of people in between. So it's a continuum, and, and that's how I, I look at this. Uh, I look at the team. So there's a, a lot of people with with similar skill sets, overlapping skill sets, but not the same skill sets. So a couple of the folks on my uh, on the data science side, they have PhDs in um, also in physics, and also PhDs in, in math. On the threat research side, they have uh, backgrounds from uh, as SOC analysts to looking for um, threat actors and and uh, focusing on APTs. And in, in the middle, we also have folks that are that have been have been brought up through the network operations world, um, through the through uh, data engineering and um, these large data pipelines. And so we have this this nice breadth of data that, that we all come together and work together to solve the same problem. So the people that, that have the domain expertise, uh, they start by describing how they're finding the in individual instances. And as we, as the individual, as we receive more and more individual instances of the same threat, they get they the data scientists are observing, learning, and figuring out how to generalize. And so what they're looking for is there's the 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 hunters are out there like collecting information and identifying, pinpointing exactly what those threats are. And then data scientists are looking for that generalization, that um, the more of a scientific approach, coming up with a hypothesis, looking for patterns. And come and determining how they can uh, abstract all the all the nuances out and filter out all the noise, and so that's the way I think about the the um, data scientists is it's not something that someone that necessarily has to have um, have domain experts coming in, but they have to benefit from that domain expertise in order to identify uh, in order to like help generalize and abstract the problem away. Um, and in a very scientific methodology, they also have to be able to explain it. And so part of being a data scientist, being a scientist in general is, is, is telling the story uh, from your data. Like, why is this interesting? Why is this important? It's a nice chart, but what, is your, what are you trying to tell me with this chart? And that's what the data scientist um, is, is there to do. And, yeah. it, and in security, we don't have enough. Yeah. Like it's, it's a really interesting problem. Um, and yeah, we need we need more. Yeah, all the time. it's 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 often you know, we 
I've, I've talked with others, you know, on the podcast and just in general, uh, you know, it's the, the issue comes down to, you know, a lot of folks that are making decisions about the direction of a company and, and managing that risk. They're just like, you know, give it to me straight. I need bullet points in white space. How can you communicate all that information into a couple sentences? And it seems to be a a skill set that is sorely lacking. It's just that be able to communicate what the heck is going on um, in an environment eloquently enough where somebody can go, okay, I got it. Here's what I want to do. Yes. So with all these different devices that, you know, we're certainly seeing more and more things, let's say, you know, whether it's IoT devices, cloud, you you name it, that's out there. Um, Is that becoming, you know, more of an issue where at least where I've seen it, it's, you know, we've had these decentralization of a lot of IT assets and information, remote workforce. Um, It's just new and different threats that go into that. How, How do you see that problem kind of getting solved? Yeah, well, I, I think discovering your own knowns is the biggest, uh, the, is the first step in all of this. Like being able to identify what you don't know as part of your infrastructure. Um, we've given a lot of our developing our development teams across the industry carte blanche in some ways to be able to spin up their own instances, to do their development, to do their testing inside of AWS, Azure, um, IBM Cloud, and, and whatnot. And so it's, it's becoming... Um, it, it feels like the Wild West again in some ways. You know, things we had, everything was wild before and back in 1990s, you know, 2000, and then everyone started locking it down and now, they're, now it's branching out again. Uh, but the first step in all of this is understanding what you own, figuring out what you need to protect, what are your crown jewels, um, so to speak, and being able to, uh, to, identify, to deliver that succinctly in, um, uh, to your research team. To your or to your security team. Yeah, it's so. it's 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 it just seems to be, you know, data normalization in itself seems to be, <laughs> uh, seems to be a challenge when you're when you're pulling these things out of a lot of different different systems. Do you find that your team's constantly having to, you know, kind of re-engineer certain things? Like, how do you, you know, say, okay, well, now we're getting this type of information. Now we have to put it into something that correlates with other stuff. Is that it continues to be a challenge? It. Yeah, absolutely. It, it certainly does, and uh, especially when you think about the these IT departments that are no longer central, and so this decentralization of the IT department, um, the decentralization of the of the security department, and having those two teams or those many teams disconnected from each other is is a is a big problem um, for security. A lot of folks on the engineering side are focused on pushing out product, making sure that they that they're delivering value to their customers. And, uh, and without the, and sometimes security is, a, is an afterthought, but having, uh, not being able to see it all at the same time and not being able to see the threats, the, the corner cases and not being able to manage it is, is a huge issue for a lot of security, um, security groups. So uh, yeah, having, so let's say you have secure, an engineering team A that's using Azure, engineering team B that's using AWS, um, and these teams, neither one of these teams are communicating well with, with the, uh, with the security department, it becomes a huge security risk, depending on what, especially depending on what kind of data they're storing in those two systems. Um, Amazon has been in the past has been notorious for opening up, uh, S3 buckets or making it easy to open up S3 buckets or ambiguous as to what they're, what you're actually doing. Uh, and so Configuring security permissions in AWS is challenging in itself. There's mm-hmm. actually companies that are focused solely on that, helping you uh, 
helping you configure your AWS systems. Um, yeah, so so it becomes a yeah it becomes very tricky to to manage it and to keep it all under wraps. And certainly, you know, we we've seen more or at least heard more of, and this is you know we're kind of heading up to the old RSA kind of week that's coming up shortly. But you know, again, and I kind of air quote it, but buzzwords like artificial intelligence, machine learning, machine assisted analysis. How do you see that stuff kind of playing into that? Where you know you're having to try to scale that ability to do analysis across all these data points. Um, in, in what regard are you, um, well, I, I can, I guess I can. I guess your views on on these is kind of buzzwords. I mean, there's lots of different ways people are kind of using it in different contexts, I find at different times. So I was kind of always, always interested in other people's kind of interpretations of how they see those types of technologies playing in and where they can be successful or, or, or maybe not successful. Uh, absolutely. I think the, the easiest one to, to be successful is detection. Uh, being able to identify threats in an automated way, being able to generalize, going back to what, what we talked about before, generalize from the um, from the classic regular expressions and rules that most security teams are used to used to working within, um, being able to identify the patterns that are that are not easy for for uh, for folks to see um, through a small amount of data or even through uh, through their own uh, own smaller analysis. So being able to take a lot of data, being able to extrapolate the their findings, uh, is a is something where artificial intelligence really shines. So detection is an easy one uh, to that's like the first step most people most people take. Uh, spam detection has been around for a long time. Phishing detection has been around for a long time, and we're getting better and better and uh, being able to generalize this more and more every day. Uh, but then the next steps in this are like prioritization. Like, well, you tell me that I've got uh, 50,000 threats on my on my infrastructure. Which one is the most critical threat? Like, where do I go first? How do I prioritize my time if I only have, you know, I only have eight hours a day? Like, where do I spend it? Uh, that's that will be the next step in in machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's already happening. Like process uh, process automation uh, and uh, or process prioritizations for humans. Like, which which threat do I look at first? Uh, that's that's key. And then it's it's blocking mitigation. And those types of things are um, are next. And so there's a lot of companies you can think of think of companies like Kenna that are prioritizing CVEs for you. This is the next step for a lot of other companies as well. Um, kind of rack and ranking them certainly so that you can you, you kind of yeah. know which order to go in things would be uh, would certainly be helpful. That's absolutely right. I mean, there's no their security teams are limited in the number of um, and operations teams are limited in, in what they can do um, and how much time they have. And it's it's critical that they uh, that they are doing the right work. Uh, so this is always a manager's nightmares. It's like, is this what is what that is what you're doing? What you should be doing? Um, but having a system that, based on previous breaches, based on previous uh, previous threats, or or even current exploits in the wild, like what should what do you need to work on now in order to keep my uh, my infrastructure safe, to keep my customers' information safe. Certainly, you know, with, and I'm kind of curious that you, know, you just kind of mentioned like the research that you've done, you know, how, how much of that now, and it's, it's I always find it interesting as people have, you know, progressed with inside an organization, but now as a CTO, you know, how much time do you get to spend on hands-on research, doing things like that versus maybe customer facing events or different things in, in the corporate structure? Do you still get to kind of uh, scratch that itch, so to speak, um, with the technical side? 
I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't have taken this position if that wasn't still on the table. So I, I absolutely have to. Um, yeah, scratching that itch is, is critical for my day to day. In fact, what I've done is I've, I've structured my teams and I've structured my, my, uh, my schedule so that every Tuesday is a meeting free day where it's, it's me diving into the weeds, like keeping up with the data, uh, keeping up with the threats. And that's, you know, it's not as much as I would like, but it, it does give me the opportunity to stay, um, stay current and experiment with, with crazy ideas. And, uh, and people who work with me, um, uh, they, they always, they get the smile on their face every time I, I say, you know, I've got a crazy idea. What if we, and then, the, yeah, so that's, so I, I definitely, uh, uh, um, I would be, I would be pretty frustrated if I, if I couldn't continue down that path. Um, but yes, I do spend a lot of time on the uh, uh, customer events. Um, last week, we're at, we had our sales kickoff, where um, a lot of the time was spent like uh, describing our new products. What are we, you know, how are we pushing? The, um, what are we doing to or in 2020, and uh, and getting people really excited about about uh, what we what we need to sell. And so, in that time, you know it's also a great time to brainstorm. So even if, even though I'm not looking at the data, I'm also, I'm brainstorming with everyone out in the field, um, figuring out what the customers have been asking about, like discussing new ideas and how to solve problems. And it's, it's a great experience as well. So I look for opportunities, not only in, um, in, my, in my isolated Tuesdays, but uh, across everything I do in order to keep fresh and keep uh, and uh, continue to generate these these crazy ideas in what, uh, you know, when, when you kind of look at some of this data and things that are coming, you know, coming about, is there particular, I would say either problems or threats that you see that are kind of emerging, you know, we're still early in this year. If you had to kind of crystal ball up for 2020, you know, what, what are the types of things that you would see organizations are going to be faced with, um, as far as, you know, security and risk. So oh, we can take, um, uh, that's a great question. So the, we can take this a few different ways because it, the big one we've been focusing on for many years is MageCart or, or web skimmers. And web skimmers have become uh, so ubiquitous. I think that when we started writing about it back in 2014, there wasn't a lot of attention, but as, we, uh, as we've been writing about it over the past couple of years, big breaches like uh, Ticketmaster and big breaches like uh, um, uh, British Airways, Newegg, so on and so forth have, have a lot, drawn a lot of attention, not just from the from the industry and from our customers, because now we have a half dozen competitors doing something like attacking this problem in different ways. But it's also bringing a lot of um, a lot of attention from the threat actors. They're figuring out a, a way they can do it better, a way they can like avoid our detection, a way they can avoid everyone's detection. And that's that's something that I think is is a, a big threat that continues to grow. And so we're we're uh, we're keeping up, and we're um, we're finding new we're finding the ways that they're they're you um, they're obfuscating their code um they're hiding in the shadows and we're, we're help, able to find uh, a lot of things um, we had a customer not so long ago that was concerned about it um, they gave us a, a few thousand domains to scan within just a few hours we had um, about 10 instances of this threat pop up and so that's that's the kind of um that's the kind of scope that we were we're tackling so that's one of the big threats that I see. Subdomain takeover has been in the, uh, has also been a recent threat where if you have a, a service that is no, uh, you have a, let's say you have a um, 
a canonical name, a C name in your DNS record from your host name to um, a, an external service, you, and that external service expires for some reason, either um, you, know, you no longer use it or, or whatnot, but, that, but if you haven't changed your DNS record, what someone can do is register that, that service and then um, siphon off information from your customers uh, in a fairly trivial manner. So that's another one where we're constantly keeping our eyes on that. Um, and I think those are the big ones that we're, we're watching because they're, we're, we're looking at things that, are, that cover the entire open web. So those those are the kind of threats that we're we're focusing on. Yeah, I find always find that whenever I, I work with customers and doing that kind of sizing of where they do have attack surface area, it's like you know, when's the last time you look at your DNS records and just pop it into like DNS dumpsters? Like what what are half of these things? Like oh yeah, we totally we just yeah we set them up. They're in our registrar and we don't really check them. I'm like you probably should. <laughs> it's you know it's that that thing of just doing the basics, just inventory, not just inside your walls, but what's um, you know, what else is out there? It seems that organizations kind of set it and forget it, so to speak. That, that's absolutely the case. That's what we see all the time is, is people are standing up this infrastructure and they let it go and they don't, um, they don't, they're not monitoring for changes. Um, they're not monit monitoring for, uh, for updates there. And, and no one can keep up with all the CVEs that are coming out on a daily basis. So it's and figuring out which ones are exploit or which ones have exploits in the wild, which ones don't. It's a it's a huge problem for a lot of um, a lot of industries. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, and that's that's a challenge. There's, there's always the threats we know about, and just trying trying to address those um, is a battle within itself. Uh, but it's it's the unknowns of what else is, you know, what else hasn't even been discovered yet. Um, you know. Do you do you guys see that there is still a lot of the? I would say would you say the preponderance of, of things that you're you're still discovering things or or maybe new threats that are not even CVE'd yet or are they still a lot of things that are just known that people you know may like you kind of you know use Equifax as an easy target but like having mm -hmm. some like Apache struts that's sitting out there on patch for a while you know what what kind of combination of those different attack surface areas do you see? Um. So what we, I'm trying to, let me see if I can, we see a, I, I would say it changes every day. So that, mm. um, hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like uh, assemble the question at the same time. So, sure. uh, so what, what you're asking is like, do you see more knowns versus, you know, things that you're discovering as, oh boy, these are going to be the next, <laughs> you know, next things, you know, cause it's always when people think about, oh geez, you know, there's, you know, oh, I, oh there's yeah, zero days. There's all these zero days. I'm like, eh, I also see a, you know, a lot of the instances I've worked have been known things like pe people just haven't patched stuff. It's not always the cutting edge stuff that attackers use. That's true. Actually, that's, that's very true because it, it, what, it's the same thing that um, maybe there's one or two threat actors out there that have a, um, a vulnerability in their back pocket that they're currently waiting to to exploit, or they have been exploiting, or you know they're looking for end of life software that's that's no longer going to be patched, and they're just waiting for that opportunity. There's a lot of that, which is really fun to <laughs> to to see roll out. Um, but a lot of it is known. A lot of it is the uh, the script kitty exploits, uh, WordPress plugins that are vulnerable. That is extremely common. We see that a lot in our phishing, uh, phishing detection is that a lot of times what we'll see is we'll see a compromised host serving up a phishing page. And typically it came through 
through vulnerability in, in WordPress or for the, the skimmers, it, can't, it used to come through Magento. There's a number of ways that they that uh, that those can appear now. But yeah, it's a uh, it's typically the old unpatched hardware that's somehow still connected to, to critical infrastructure that is a that is a bigger threat. It's highly visible to a large number of um, uh, entry level attackers. Is the way I would I'd probably put it. Mm. And these and it may be even the highly sophisticated folks. They may they may still go to they may still have their um, default go tos. I mean, if you think about every um, every APT group, the way that they're categorized is based on their um, uh, their their CVE that they enjoy exploiting. It's their their common common vulnerability and exploit um, that they're 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 going after. And so that's the so it's typically the the stuff we know about uh, already. And and a lot of times when you, when you see these CVEs come out, the CVE will come out prior to the to the um, POC, the exploit POC, or prior to the um, to the exploit itself. And so that's uh, that's much more common than the than the alternate or the than the than the inverse. Mm-hmm. It sounds like so, from what you said, you know, and it's such a good point. That I think. People don't people don't appreciate, but there is there's a good amount of pattern recognition that goes on to detecting threat actors and how we kind of group them. Or yeah, we've just you know recently indicted some of the alleged um, Chinese hackers that might have been involved with um, the stuff in uh, the, the Equifax reach. But you know how much of that you know that was early discovered by just patterns like people fall into habits and then they, they be, those become things you can start recognize i'm sure you know somebody <laughs> that must click i would imagine with parts of your data scientist side of the mm-hmm. brain where like okay i can start seeing this as a common thread that this attack group's using or there's there's something that's kind of starting to appear out of the the fog of war we yeah we do we have a lot of and we have a lot of pattern um, algorithms out there so what we're looking for is is uh, traces through uh, redirection chains and ad networks which is also really fun. So you see these you see these ad network chains of, of fifteen or or, or so um, uh, sequence or resource sequences. So one resource calls another resource, blah blah, blah. and eventually you end up with these unique threats. But what's not unique is the thing up the chain, and that thing up the chain that that um, that uh, traffic distribution system that's that's malicious. I mean that's something that that uh, that our Detection can um, can handle and identify fairly easily, and so there's there's a lot of that. Uh, what's the common thread? What I mean, yes, we have the symptom, but where where's the where's the source? So, yes, that is a, that's pretty exciting to to be able to find uh, figure out and and uh, and and surface in a fairly automated way, especially when we're we're scanning where uh, we perform, say about. I think we're up to about four billion HTTP requests a day, pulling down all these resources for all these all these pages that we're scanning, looking for threats. So you can imagine all the images, all the fav icons, all the JavaScript uh, JavaScript resources that we're pulling down, all the response bodies and DOMs that we're rendering. It's a lot of data. Uh, all the ports that we're scanning. It's uh, yeah, we we have a lot of data to sift through, and if without um, a strong data science team. It would just sit there, and, and uh, you know, and be useless for for uh, for a lot of people. So I'm I'm very happy that we can benefit from that. 
yeah, from sounds, all of our data and all of our collection. It sounds like, but again, it's like it sounds like cool problems to try to solve because it's, you know, I, I would imagine your internal infrastructure, not even your you know, necessarily, I would say client-based stuff, but just building out the resources to handle that much um, must have been kind of a, a fun challenge to build out within itself. It was, yeah. When I first started here, we had a, a four-node um, MapR cluster, and now we have, or now it's significantly bigger than that, and that was a really fun uh, project to build out. So we. And that was that what they were using it for was just our distributed NFS system, which is a um, which is highly robust. But we grew that uh, grew that cluster far beyond uh, what our uh, what our founders um, ever imagined it would be. So I'm very excited and very proud of, of what we've accomplished on the infrastructure side. I bet that sounds again. I I, I will always be that gearhead that. When somebody says, "Hey, you know, can you can you help me <laughs> build something?" It's like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> let's let's yeah, do it." Actually, yeah, and that's something in my background that we didn't talk about. Like, it's uh, so speaking of gearheads, I'm and um, I have a '67 Cougar that I've had since I was 17. Oh wow! And uh, and so I yeah built it, uh, bought it for almost nothing, built it up, and it's always like, "Can I make it faster? Can I make it? Um, can it? Can I make it corner better?" And that's what the the same mentality, the same mindset that I have. Um, towards the cluster, towards our detection, towards our um, uh, towards our data science. It's like, can I can we detect? Can we do it better? Can we make it faster? Can we can we utilize these resources um, better? And it's it's a, that's another problem outside of the security problem that's also a lot of fun. So yeah, Risk IQ is it's full of full of really challenging problems, and I I, I love it. Well, that's awesome. Well, Adam, thanks so much for taking the time today. Where where can folks find you online? Um, I think the best place to find me online is LinkedIn. So I can send uh, send that out. I, I don't have a Twitter handle, um, and and uh, and I and so Facebook is is not something I, I um, you know, it's a whole other thing. But yes, so so LinkedIn is probably the best way to find me, or you can reach me at um, adam.hunt at riskiq.net. Awesome. I'll be right, sure well. to put all that in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time today. All right. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.